This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, a real treat for me. There is a small fraternity of Jewish podcasters out there doing kinds of similar work to one another. And this week, I have the pleasure of interviewing one of them, not just because he is a podcaster, but because of his prodigious knowledge of and passion for Jewish history and the really fascinating niche that he's carved out as a tour guide, historian, and yes, also podcaster and teacher of Jewish history to the masses. Yehuda Geberer is an autodidact. He taught himself so much about Jewish history. He did later go on to receive formal education in the field, but at his core is a person who is just brimming with enthusiasm and passion for this subject. What's really fun for me about this conversation is that Yehuda and I have never actually met in person Although we have been in a good amount of contact over the last number of months or year as his podcast has gained renown. So it was a real treat to be able to have an extensive conversation to interview him and hear about the story behind his podcast and his life more broadly. A reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know. That's spelled out fully on Facebook and Instagram. Jews, you should know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you are listening to podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher. Please share the existence of this podcast with your friends and family, especially during this time of coronavirus, when many people may be searching for meaningful and uplifting content to help fill their days. And now to our conversation with Jewish historian, tour guide, and host of the Jewish History Soundbites podcast, Yehuda Geberer. We are here with Jewish historian, tour guide, and perhaps most notably podcaster, Yehuda Geberer. How are you, Yehuda? Great. How are you, Ari? Doing awesome. So Yehuda and I have gotten to know each other a little bit remotely as he has launched his podcast a while back now, and I am an avid listener. I don't miss an episode and really, really enjoy it. The thoroughness, but also the engaging style in which Yehuda presents this material. And so I figured after all this back and forth and hearing so much vicariously about him, I would just uh, get in touch with Yehuda and see if we could learn a little bit about his life story directly. So Yehuda... Why don't we take it from the top and tell us about your own Jewish history? Where are you from? Where is your family from? Where did it all begin? First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And um, I, I grew up in, uh, in Muncie, in New York, and a regular standard family. And we moved to my parents and my family moved to Israel when I was 14 years old. And because they didn't like you, or? <laughs> <laughs> and it's all good. 
and uh, regular uh, Jewish education. And at uh, 18, I went to the Mir in Yerushalayim, and I was there for many, many years. And, um, and that's my life story. That's, that's <laughs> it. And then I rolled into history at some point. Okay, we're not going to let you get away with such an abbreviated version of the story. Uh, what's your family's roots? Were they long-term American? Long-term American. I mean, now I'm first generation Israeli. I can't on Yomatsmo just talk about my American roots. Uh, but before that, prior to that, I was six, technically sixth generation. My ancestors came over with the great immigration from Eastern Europe in the late 19th century, like millions of other Jews. And we're there for, for all that time in New York, which is accepted amongst uh, American Jews to be in New York. And then we made it over here. Growing up, did you know a lot about your family history? Was it something that was talked about often? Were there all the old family pictures on the wall? No, I fell into history at the macro level. It was never micro. Um, I had a passion for Jewish history as a young child. Um, I never had a, a moment uh, where all of a sudden uh, the light opened up and I decided that history is my calling. I, I don't know, I never had it. I just always found it interesting. In fact, I didn't even start with Jewish history. I, I just liked history as a subject. It was enjoyable. I studied American history. Again, this is as a child, not in a, an academic sense yet. I liked sports history. I was very into baseball and all that. And um, Yankees, I, I presume, or Yankees, Yankees. You were, yeah, we were good, good New Yorkers. <laughs> the National League didn't talk to me. And um, I rolled into Jewish history at some point. I enjoyed the subject. I delved into it. I read up a lot. And it was just something that interested me uh, over time. Why did your family uh, choose to move to Israel? They, they, you know, they came from a Zionistic background. They, um, they liked it. And they, they, wanted to, they wanted to move to Israel. <laughs> did they have a firm plan for coming there? A lot of times it's hard to transition professionally. My father's a doctor. It's pretty standard. It's easy to find a job. And thank God he's still a doctor and doing well. And they live in Yerushalayim. Um, I live in Beit Shemesh now with my family. And um, that's it. So I joked before that people will typically advise not to make Aliyah with teenagers because of the difficulty integrating socially, learning the language. And all of those kinds of transition problems, potentially. Was that your experience or how was your transition? It was, you know, every adjustment period is, is an adjustment period. Um, you know, since I'm a historian, so obviously I'm going to be socially awkward anyway. Um, and uh, <laughs> so obviously the social aspect's not an issue. Uh, I'm just kidding. But it's, it, it, it was, it, there's a couple of years of acclimating and, the bumps smooth out and you eventually it's still young enough in Asia you pick up the language fairly easily and and um, you make it I came to the mirror four years later at 18 and the mirror is a universe of itself and it's mostly American so it was it was pretty smooth uh, after that you went right into an Israeli school an Israeli yeshiva when you moved or it was more of kind of a mixed environment it's Israeli yeshivas was there much of a culture shock when you got there I know a lot of young people coming from an American religious background, even a very religious background, 
can still be somewhat intimidated by their Israeli counterparts. I'm still intimidated by them. (laughs) There you go. So all the more so at age 14, I would imagine. Was reading always a big passion of yours? Was that your constant companion? Yeah, but even before Israel, even since I'm a little child, I always liked reading. Um, I I was somewhat normal at some point in my life that I like non that I like fiction also. But uh, I always liked nonfiction, and and uh, I was a big reader. You know, thank God I wasn't. I'm not a millennial. This was pre-internet, so it was still possible to be a big reader. I don't know if it even exists anymore. <laughs> I think my daughter's still one of the, the last few holdouts, but <laughs> not many more. What, <laughs> what drew you to history early on? You said general history, then Jewish history. What about that had a pull for you? Um, I'm not sure. Again, I never had that that enlightening moment. I just found it interesting. I found it the story of our past um, fascinating about how things developed over time, um, about how we connect and we come from the past and we are to a certain extent living history for the future. And that whole connection uh, there, you know, seemed to be very fascinating. The idea of it fascinating to me, the history of nations, the history of peoples, wars, famous people, um, the you know how the economy develops over time history of markets and culture and you know every facet of it, it just seemed to me that it's what becomes like this big tapestry that comes together and you're part of that you're a cog in the in the wheel and the system and and you have a you know you're you have that place to play on the world stage at some point as well and it's a, it's either a destiny of a humanity it's, a, it's the destiny of your own people or of your own community of wherever you're connected to and that i guess that sense of connection uh, made it that more exciting and interesting i imagine as a child just reading about these things you weren't that preoccupied with the meta questions of the role of jewish history in jewish history whether it was something that was pursued encouraged and so forth but as you got older and you probably started to think about things or encountered other people, rabbis and other spiritual guides. What kind of attitudes did you encounter with respect to your interest in Jewish history? Was it encouraged? Did people tell you you're, you're wasting your time, you know, just focus on the future, on the present? It doesn't have value. What was that experience for you? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, the, I think most people today they recognize that there is an importance of it and since almost no one's doing it so there's a kind of respect uh, that you're taking care of that for everyone else who's going to be accountants and, and lawyers and in uh, real estate so you know mainly what i what i develop over time and i'm not a historian in ivory tower i work in the field with groups and in all kinds of frameworks and contexts which obviously we're going to get to at some point. And what I see is I see from experience. I see that uh, that the place in Jewish identity and education and destiny and, and all that is real. And, and we, it's needed and it's necessary. And you can argue at the theoretical level that it's less important than this or it's more important than that or it wasn't important 100 years ago and 
historically it hasn't been important, which how do you know that if you don't study history? <laughs> but it, the proof is in the pudding. And if you speak to groups and you see what it does to them and you see how it connects people, then it seems just obvious that it has a role to play. And, and you know, how that role is played. Is it just from text? Is it just, is it with trips? Is it with lectures? With visual, with multimedia, with movies, with whatever it is? That's already educational debate. But the actual idea that history has an important role to play, I think it's, you know, it's clear. So you were a yeshiva student at the Mir Yeshiva, which for those unfamiliar is perhaps the largest yeshiva in the world, thousands and thousands of students. And you were doing all this self-reading and so forth. At some point, obviously, this transformed from an avocation into a vocation. So when and how did that process take place? When did you become more than just a yeshiva guy with a book reading habit? It was very, first it was very well said. I mean, uh, you really uh, brought it out because th- that's exactly what happened. I was a yeshiva student with a reading habit and it kind of evolved into uh, a full-time affair. And, and as there's the nature of things, it's a process. Um, it's several stages and it happens over quite a you know, period of time. Um, you know, I, I, wonder, I can't say what, what was first and what was a bigger catalyst, and it's hard to say, but there were definitely several factors that come to mind over time. Um, from a young age, you know, uh, I start, since I grew up in Muncie and since I grew up in a religious background, so one of the first history books that I was exposed to was Rabbi Beryl Wines. Uh, history stuff, which, I, you know, I loved the interview that you had with him recently, and anytime he speaks, I try to hear him. So I read his stuff, I heard his lectures, and in those days it was cassette tape. You know, and when I came to the mirror, I got to know him personally. Um, I used to eat Shabbos meals with him at his house in Rechavia, and he invited me to attend his live lectures in our Sameach, right near the mirror in Yerushalayim. And I got close with him, and I had my notes from, from his lectures, and I got to speak to him about all kinds of things. And he kind of pushed me along into the field, and through him and his works, I got exposed to more academic material, not just basic reading material. And so I started to take it more seriously. I'd say that that was maybe like a first stage, and I've maintained that relationship with him actually over the years. I'm still quite close with him, uh, and he should live and be well for many more happy and healthy years. Um, but at one point, I was already married, and I was looking to, for a career. I was trying to do all whatever, all the standard things that, that uh, yeshiva guys are supposed to do, go to school and become a businessman, you know, go into finance or real estate or marketing or anything like that. So I was getting a business degree and, and doing what, what, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing to support a family. And um, a cousin of mine calls me up. He's in education. And he says, um, you know history. You, you, you read a lot of history, Jewish history stuff, right? I said, yeah, I know a little bit. I, I, I read up. I'm not like a professional guy. So this is probably eight, nine years ago, I'd say. And he says, listen, I have a group that I'm leading, a summer camp that I'm leading. We're going on a trip to Poland for a week. And we're leaving next week. 
and our tour guide just canceled. Would you mind coming along? By the way, have you ever been to Poland? <laughs> and I've never been to Europe. I've been to New York and where I grew up, and I've been to Israel. I've never been anywhere else. I never traveled. I never vacationed anywhere. I never went to Florida. I've never been anywhere. I'm the most boring guy on the planet. And everything I know is from books. I've never been to Poland. never been to any of these. What do you want from me? So he says, what do you care? The bus driver already has our itinerary. We know where we're going. Look at Google Maps. You know the stories of each place. When we get off at each place, we'll tell you, we're getting off at this and this stop. You'll whip out your stories from that stop, and you'll say the history. What are you, what's the difference if you were there or not? We're desperate. Come on. And you'll make a few hundred bucks. What are you, like, what, you're getting a free trip to Europe. Well, like, I don't understand your hesitation. So I didn't understand the hesitation either, so I went along. And, and on the trip, I was like, wow, this is awesome. This is great. It's fun. It's enriching. It's a powerful experience. It's inspiring. I'm not only for myself, but I'm, you know, able to teach others in not in a classroom. You're reaching others in, you know, in the field on the site, and you're. It's a whole different experience. So, I got back. I, you know, made a nice resume, and I sent it out to all these different tour companies that do these types of trips, and. One was nice enough to even answer me with a response and eventually took me on a trip. And then other tour companies found that I was good, so they started fighting over me. And I don't like when people fight, so I started <laughs> all of them. And one thing led to another, and I'm starting to do more and more trips, doing more trips. I figure I need something. I have a family. I can't be always on a trip. I need something history-related in Israel. So I went over to Yad Vashem. I walked over to the desk there, you know, Avraham, the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Israel, and I said, um, "Do you train tour guides? I'm, I would like to become a tour guide here." And they said, "Yeah, sure. Contact this and this." They put me through their course. They licensed me as a tour guide in the museum at Yad Vashem, and then they started sending me to interview survivors in their homes. So we go down with camera teams and we interview Holocaust survivors. And I started doing all sorts of things for Yad Vashem. And here I am doing trips. And then people hear that I do trips and I work for Yad Vashem. So I'm involved in Jewish history. So they started asking me to do Jewish history tours in Israel. Like, modern, you know, I focus on modern Jewish history. The last 500 years, give or take, that's modern. We're an old people. So the last 500 years is modern Jewish history. And so I started doing... Uh, you know, walking tours of old neighborhoods in Jerusalem and different, you know, cemetery tours and any, anyone who's into Jewish history is into death and, and cemeteries and all that. <laughs> you know, we have a very morbid view of, uh, of everything. So we started taking families and tourists and of all kinds of interesting places in, in Israel that are related to modern Jewish history. And in the meantime, and I'm lecturing, people are calling up to lecture here and there and in this framework and this place and that place and this group. And I'm like, you know, I've got, to, I've got to have better credentials, and this is all becoming a real career. I'm not going into business. It's not happening. So the bachelors in business will just leave over the side. Got to do something in Jewish history. So at that point, I decided to go to Hebrew University and go for a master's in Jewish history. And uh, that's I'm still, still in there. It's a while. <laughs> and, uh, and now so now I could officially be called, uh, you know, not just uh, – 
a yeshiva guy pretending to be a historian, but hopefully an actual real historian one day. He was also a tour guide and doing all that educational work in Jewish history as well. Have you gone through the actual tour guide program in Israel or just Yad Vashem? The tour guide program in Israel isn't directly related to history, so I didn't want to do it. It covers, you know, the length and breadth of Israel, and it's a great thing. It's wonderful, and it's a great tour, and the tour guides there are wonderful. I meet them all the time. But I need something that's not just history-based, but it's Jewish history-based and modern Jewish history-based, because I'm like, really, really focused. Um, the last 500,000 years of Jewish history, and... And anything else would just be a distraction. So, you know, I'm focused on what I'm... And also, I, I know my limitations. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. And it's good to, to know, you know, and stay focused on what you're good at. Right. I've definitely noticed that in your podcast, for example, you really are focused on modern Jewish history and not just even the last 500 years, but even like more like 200 years or so. Um, I always marvel. I don't know how you remember these like Hasidic family tree, dynasties. It's amazing to me. But was there a particular point in time when you decided to really focus in on that? What about the really modern, modern period has such an appeal to you? Well, first of all, it's also another great question. You have great questions, by the way. Only the best. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's a subjective thing. Uh, there's, There's no more interesting or less interesting. It's what's interesting to me, uh, completely subjective. And the reason that I connected not only to modern Jewish history, but as you correctly pointed out, it's specifically to the last 250, 300 years, is because um, the last few centuries of Jewish life is really the encounter of Jewish life with modernity. And here you have an ancient people, which, uh, which was a very traditional people, um, nation, living scattered amongst many nations of the world um, in somewhat cohesive units and communities. And they're confronted with modernity in many different ways, in in the fact that governments started to uh, grant them emancipation and equal rights, in the fact that technology was changing, in the fact that the Jewish people from within was changing and being more exposed and the desire to integrate and acculturate themselves into the modern world. And there's all sorts of movements and shifts within the Jewish people in many different lands and in many different ways with various different expressions of grappling with the challenges of modern times. And those centuries, the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, last 300 years, is the story of, of dealing with those challenges. And everyone had a solution. Everyone had what to say, and everyone, and there was move, mass movements and small movements and specific ideologies and answers in this country and that country and this empire and that empire, and, and maybe shifting the, from place to place, right? The, the migrations, uh, it's also part of a great part of the modern Jewish story. And then you look around in 2020 at the Jewish world, and you see that we, as a Jewish people, are a direct product of all those upheavals, of all those changes. What shapes us today is all the decisions that were made in the 18th and 19th centuries of how are we gonna deal with the modern world? And the way we're dealing with the modern world of 2020 is based on the collective experiences that we've had as a people in their various different expressions, 
during the last couple of centuries. And I'm, that fascinated me because that's relevant. That says, you know, I, I have to understand how I am today. And in order for me to do that, I have to say, I have to see when were they first confronted? Does it help me understand who I am today and who we are today? But it also, it also enables us to be better informed and better equipped to build a future. Interesting. So it wasn't just an abstract intellectual pursuit, but it was really an attempt to wrap your mind around the current moment that we live in. Exactly. Got it. So what's kind of the balance of the different things that you do? You've got the guiding in Israel. You've got the Yad Vashem gig. You've got these tours internationally. And I would imagine the tours take a lot of time and are difficult to go on too many of them if you have a family. But at the same time, from listening to your podcast, it sounds like you're quite frequently going abroad. You just got back from Poland, got back from Prague, at least back in the day, maybe in history, (laughs) so to speak, when travel was a thing that could be done pre-corona. So how do you actually balance out your time uh, within your portfolio? So, like you said, in the corona era, there's zero traveling, but there's also zero anything else. There's no tourists coming to Israel, and Yad Vashem is closed. So the, there's no, podcast there's no... interviews. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the, in the normal world, in the traveling, you know, like you said, since I have a family, traveling can't be that often. Um, there, it is a seasonal thing. There are high points during the year, so then I'll have two or three trips in, in a month or six weeks, but then you'll go three months with zero trips because it's not, it's just not, not when people are going. So then you average it out. You build a uh, framework with the fa- with, that works with the family and, and you, I do, you go here and want to go there. There's no shortage of traffic to Yad Vashem. There's no shortage. I do private research also. I could sit in my home in front of my computer and I'll have a client who's asking me to research someone in their family's past and to try to write up a summary or to go through a file of documents. And I do all kinds of private research. I could be at home for a week without leaving the home, kind of like what we're doing now anyway. Say more than a week. <laughs> yeah. And that will be part, that will be, an, uh, you know, an aspect of it. So it's uh, juggling it in between everything. It's being involved in history. It's making a living. It's doing a lot of things. Okay. So I want to drill down now in greater depth to all the various sub aspects of what you do, the trips and the touring, the guiding in Yad Vashem. Let's start with Yad Vashem. You said you go into survivors' homes to interview them, which is incredible. Is there a particular story or situation that sticks with you more than any others that you just can't get out of your mind that really has changed you in some way <laughs> it's a tough call i love survivors they're so special people um they you know going into their home and they welcome into their home and you feel like you're intruding on their lives and you have this conversation with them on the phone a week before and you want to make sure they're okay and they're elderly and it's not an easy experience going through a testimony first of all you're you're setting up a studio in their house with a camera team it's intimidating and they have to relive their experiences and you really, really are trying to make them feel comfortable and not be intrusive and not be, you know, you want them to, it's their home and it's their story. You want them to feel comfortable. And that's, that's how you come in, you know, and you're very unsure of yourself when 
walk in like that. And they are the most wonderful people. They're so warm. And they prepare you coffee and cake when you come in. And they're just so excited to see you and to speak to you. And they thank you for doing this beautiful mission of recording their story. And um, they're real heroes. And then you hear their stories. And each one has a story from their angle and their perspective in the country that they were in. You know, it's really hard to zero in on one specific because I really love them all. And, and I, it's, a, it's a gratifying work. It's really special. It's harsh. It's hard. You know, I remember, uh, you know, things will pop into my head. I could share with you as they come along. I remember I was interviewing a wonderful woman in Chulon. She was from Kovna, a real Litvak. And she was in the Kovna ghetto. And the Kovna ghetto was a rough place. It was a harsh place. And she's describing to me an aktsia in the Kovna ghetto. An aktsia is when the Nazis would periodically come into the ghetto and round up the Jews uh, during once they were already implementing the final solution. And in the case of Kovna, which was in Lithuania, which was part of the Soviet Union at the onset of the war, so they were not sent to to death camps, to gas chambers, as, as in all other places in the Soviet Union, they were sent to a place right outside the town and shot into pits. In the case of Kovna, it was at the Ninth Fort, right outside the city. So she's, she's hiding in her house during the Aksia, and she's describing it to me, and it's vivid. She was a teenager, like a 15 or 16-year-old girl at the time, and she's describing what, was, what we know from the history books as the Children's Act. Uh, which was a two-day oxy. The Nazis decided to convert the ghetto into, into essentially a concentration camp, and they only wanted healthy workers to remain, so they rounded up the children who were useless as far as the Nazis were concerned. And um, you're, in, you're in Holocaust research, so you've read about the children's axia in many different sources, and you've read testimonies, and you've read books about it. But here you're hearing it live. You're hearing it from someone who was there, who witnessed it, and is describing it. And she describes how she crouched under where she was hiding and she would peek up occasionally to look out the window to see it. And she describes how she witnessed the wagon with full of children being led away by the Nazi guards and hearing the screams and hearing the parents come running after her. And then she breaks down and she starts crying. She can't go on. And there's this silence on the camera. You know, she's in front of a camera, and she's just quiet. And, of course, I'm not saying anything. And it's just silent for three, four minutes while she just sobs and sobs and sobs. She relived this experience, and it's the first time she's describing it. She didn't want to talk about it beforehand, but now she felt, like many of the survivors tell us at these times, that they're in their 90s and they want their story to be preserved. So that's a powerful experience. And here's this wonderful lady, and she feels that this is an important story to tell, and it's a harsh, it's a harsh reality. On the other hand, you have inspirational moments. And part of Yad Vashem's policy is to focus a chunk of the interview where it's possible, where there is memory, where they're old enough to have those memories of their life before. You know, there was a world that was lost. It's not just about the story of the destruction, and that's Yad Vashem's philosophy, that it should be the story of the world that was. And uh, I remember in particular, uh, there was a Hungarian Jew who was in a little, little yeshuv near Tel Aviv. We went down to interview him, and a great guy, grew up in Mishkolts, a town in Hungary. And I asked him if he came from a traditional background, a Hasidic background. He says, I came from a Hasidic background. I said, did your family have any 
affiliation with any Hasidic rabbi. And he said, sure, not far from Mishkos, there's a town called Kerastir. And my grandfather was a follower of the rabbi of Kerastir, the Hasidic rabbi from Shiloh of Kerastir. Now, in the last five years, Rav Shiloh has become the thing. And there's books written about him. And I bring groups there all the time. And it's fun. And there's great food. And it's awesome. And there's a lot to say about the trips there. And great. It's all good. But, you know, when things are marketed that way, and when it becomes a thing, and it becomes a little bit over much, so you start doubting the veracity of a lot of the stories. And what's the source? And come on, where was he 15 years ago? We only heard of him five years ago. What happened here? Here's a guy who doesn't know about the marketing that's going on in Borough Park and in Yerushalayim. He's an elderly Hungarian Jew, traditional Jew, living in a little yeshuv near Tel Aviv in his 90s. You know, he's not part of that whole scene. So whatever he's saying is an actual family tradition. It's accurate. He's telling it to the Yad Vashem archives. It's, this is it. This is a real story. And this is, this is a story. So he said that it, it really brings out the beauty, the simplicity, the warmth of Hungarian Jewry, and especially Hasidic Hungarian Jewry. Uh, he said his grandfather um, one time bought his, his wife, his grandmother, a present, a pair of earrings, which, you know, many husbands do that for their wives till today. And he decided, as a, as a simple, again, with that certain simplicity and warmth uh, of this small-town Hungarian Hasidic Jews that they had, there's a certain uh, beauty to, which um, in our urban, cynical society exists much less of today. He said, I want to get these earrings blessed by my rabbi before I give them to my wife. So he travels to Karastir, and he tells his rabbi, Shailam, I'm giving these earrings to my wife as a present. Can you bless them? And Rav Shaila holds the earrings, and he says, whoever wears these earrings will live long years, long and healthy years. Long years or long ears? <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> so his grandmother wears the earrings, and his grandmother lives to the ripe old age of 91. And uh, she died in Hungary before the war. And 91 was a nice old age, especially for them. And she gives over the earrings as an inheritance to this guy's mother, the survivor's mother. And she wears the earrings. And then the war breaks out. And he gets put up with a family. He's hidden. But the family gets sent to Auschwitz. And the mother is the only one from the family to survive and come back and rescue him from the ones who had hidden him. And she rescues the earrings that she had hidden before the war also and continues to wear them. And she, with her son, moved to Israel after the war. And they li she lived a long life and lived to the ripe old age of 91, wearing the earrings. Now, he was the only surviving child. And he's a boy. And, you know, he wasn't part of the hippie movement in the 60s. So he wasn't wearing the earrings. And so his wife, in other words, the, mother, the mother's daughter-in-law, inherits the earrings. And lo and behold, she's sitting right next to him during this testimony that he's giving, and she's wearing the earrings, and she's close to 90. And I hope she doesn't stop at 91. I hope she keeps on going past that, but she's still alive today. And then he whips out a picture, a black and white picture of his grandmother, the original recipient, wearing those earrings. So it's just like 
you know, you get a real, it's an amazing story, it's a beautiful story, you get a glimpse of Jewish life then, and that's just a, one taste of speaking to survivors, you know, in their home. Incredible. I'm just curious, how did you get that honor to be able to go and do those interviews? I imagine they would have had many docents, many tour guides who would be interested in that position. Um, there's a shortage of interviewers in Yad Vashem, at least when they hired me, and they were just recruiting and... It's not easy work. You always have to be knowledgeable. You have to have a lot of background. You have to know what questions to ask. It's not, you know, so they wanted to go on a drive of getting all the survivors before it's too late. So they were doing a hiring binge. So they, they got me. I would imagine that many of these people had already been interviewed by Spielberg or something like that. No? Well, those we won't interview. We only want to interview the ones who have never interviewed. Uh, okay. You were only looking for survivors who had never been interviewed before. Got it. Um, so switching gears now to your worldwide travels, what would you say is your favorite country to visit or city? And what is the craziest story that's happened to you on one of these excursions? Okay. So, so first of all, since it's, you know, uh, Jews have been all over the world. So theoretically, in theory, it could be completely worldwide. Jews have been everywhere. Um, since my focus is on modern Jewish history, so it's basically Europe, primarily Eastern Europe, Poland, Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, Hungary, Romania, Czechoslovakia, Central Europe, Western Europe, Germany, Austria, and beyond. Morocco is becoming actually a popular destination lately, so hopefully we'll get some tours there when things settle down. But in theory, it's anywhere. Um, so, but, you know, the tours I've been doing is mainly to Europe. And like I said, primarily to Eastern Europe. I like all the countries. Um, each one has a different angle. You know, you know, as soon as you say, I like this country, so someone will tell you, yeah, but you have, you have this in another country. That's true. That's an aspect of that country. So there's great things to say. And each country has, has really a different story to tell. And there was the glory days. And like uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, participants, you know, they have this uh, somewhat anticipation that the tour is going to be like a Holocaust oriented. And I say in every tour, um, we were in many of these countries for close to a thousand years. And we had our ups and downs all through those thousand years. And there was a very tragic ending to that thousand years um, with the Holocaust. But we have to recognize that the Holocaust was the decimation at the end six years long, and we can't ignore the Jewish story, the glory, what was produced, Jewish communities, Jewish life, families, leaders, books that were written, um, Hasidic life, the yeshivas, education, uh, religious revival, like, uh, the, you know, all the modern movements that I, you know, mentioned earlier. And uh, and that's a whole story. That's a, that's a collective story from, uh, you know, from... You have to get the whole gamut of it uh, to get it, not just focus on what was destroyed at the end. So I like I like all the countries. I can't say I have a favorite country. I do have some favorite cities uh, that I like. Is you know definitely like going to Mezhebizh to the Balshemtiv in the Ukraine. It has a certain ambiance there, a certain feel in the air, a certain mystical. Uh, you know, there's it, again totally subjective. Of course, in Belarus, I like going to the Mir because of where I was in yeshiva for many years, to go where the Mir's origins were and to be by Baruch Levavitz, the great Mashgiach, 
a gravesite and to tell stories and to uh, talk about what the mirror was and its major contribution to uh, educational life in the Jewish world and the amount of Torah that was produced and it continues to produce in the next stage. So you see the whole connection. It's the oldest yeshiva in the world. And, you know, I like I like Warsaw. I like Kutsk, where the Kutsk Rebbe was. I like uh, Hungary. <laughs> I like it all. But you wanted the craziest story that happened. So I have several of those and I definitely... Uh, would love to be happy to share with you. Um, uh, we were in Ukraine, actually, on the way to the Baal Shem Tov, but we stopped in Bardichev by Reb Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev, the Kedusha Slevi, who's known as the Bardichever. And um, I'm telling the story of the Bardichever and one of the greatest leaders in the history of the Hasidic movement. And he had two main facets that we always focus on when we go there is both the way he always tried to see the good in the Jewish people. He was never willing to see the bad. He always, always, always wanted to be their advocate, always wanted to point out the positive, never to see the negative, which is also a lesson that it's, you know, could be very relevant today. But there's another aspect of, of who he was and his teachings was his excitement to fulfill the mitzvahs, to fulfill the commandments of the Torah. And he had this, like, unbridled excitement he had like totally his his slavos he had a fire a sabrenin it burned within him and I, I always tell stories about how seeing the positive in the jewish people and how he his excitement for mitzvahs that's the two types of stories i focus on so we're standing there and i'm guiding in front of the gravesite and we're going to pray there and daven and I tell one of the many stories, and, you know, God puts it in your head which story to tell. And I said a story about how the Hasidic movement, one of the innovations they had was not to wear tefillin on Cholomai, on the part of Yantif. That's the intermediate days between the two, uh, the two uh, days of Yantif. Not to wear tefillin, because it has a holy status just like Yantif itself. We don't do anything that's weekday. Until then, everyone wore tefillin on Cholomai, and the Hasidim came along, and people were upset at them. Not going to go into that whole story. I said the Kedusha Slavi, the Radichever, he started off not as a Hasidic boy when he grew up. He converted to Hasidism. So he stopped wearing tefillin. And for someone who's always excited to do mitzvahs, so he was in a quandary. On one hand, he's adopting the customs of the Hasidic movement. On the other hand, he can't wear tefillin. So on the last night, right after the holiday was over, by Pesach and by Sukkot, the last night on Maitziyantif, he would stay up all night and he would pace his room back and forth and he said, I can't wait to wear tefillin again. And at the first crack of dawn, he would grab his tefillin and say, I can finally wear my tefillin and put them on. And I built it up and I'm not saying it as long as I did it there. It was a five minute story at the time. And when I finished this and a few other stories, so the guitar guy on the trip, we usually try to have one of those. He starts playing the Baditch of Inigin, which I'm not going to sing because, because I want people to enjoy your podcast. And a real beautiful, heart-rending, touching, inspiring song. And we sing it for a half an hour and people are dancing. And it's, it's, people went into, into a different world. Okay. All good things come to an end. We get back on the bus. We head towards Bridge. We stop at a gas station to, to take a break, to use the facilities and to buy some stuff. And a guy comes over to me and he says, I want to tell you something. I haven't put on tefillin in two years. 
And most people here don't know that. I've been having my issues with religion, with God, with my family, and I haven't worn tefillin in two years. But because of your story, I'm putting on tefillin from now on. I'm now committing myself to put on tefillin from now on. And uh, he did. And I followed up with him actually about six months later, he was still doing it. And things like that happen on trips because the trips are not just about me telling stories. If it was me about telling stories, I could rely on my podcast, which is very successful in Jewish history, sound bites. People love it and they get inspired, but it's not the same when you're there on site, going with a group together. And it's not about me talking. It's about me allowing or enabling rather the place to talk for itself. The place talks, the ghosts there talk, the shuls are talking, and they're telling the story. And I'm just trying to create the atmosphere that the place itself talks. And that's what moves people, that's what inspires people. I had many stories like that. I had a group of college students I was bringing completely from a completely unaffiliated background. No connection. They're basically on the verge of complete assimilation. And at the end of the trip, we did like, uh, you know, what was your favorite part of the trip thing, which we do at the end of every trip. And one of them raises, you know, when it got to his turn, he said, which parenthetically, this boy I found out from his educational director of the trip, the one who brought him, I found that this boy was, was several months earlier was on the verge of converting to Christianity because he, he didn't know of any spiritual meaning or existence within Judaism. So he was thinking of converting to Christianity. So, and he was pushing it off for the meantime. And he came on this trip to Poland. That was a trip to Poland. And at the end of the trip, it got to his turn and he said, I want to deepen my commitment to Judaism. And despite the fact that no one does this on campus, I will from now on wear a yarmulke, a head covering on campus all the time to openly display my commitment to a Jewish way of life. And I said, what made you on this trip make that, to come to that decision? And he said, when we were in Lezhensk, by the Noyim Alimelech, the great, also one of the great lights of the Hasidic movement, and hearing what he brought and hearing what you described and the stories that you said over and what he meant and what, what he was trying to impart to his followers and to his students. And I said, wow. There is spiritual meaning in Judaism. I was never aware that there was. And then we were in Belzec, which was a death camp. And I saw what happened to the Jewish people. And what happened just because they were Jews, they were from the Jewish race. And I decided from the combination of those factors that I have to be more committed to a Jewish way of life. And, uh, you know, you have stories like this all the time, stories like this in every trip. I had once a fellow who was a recent returnee to traditional Jewish life, a Baal Teshuvah. And he loved the trip. He had a great time. Awesome. He loved every part of the trip and he had what to say. He added a lot. He was, he was great. I met him. I bumped into him a year later at some sort of simcha, a gathering someone's bris. And I said, hey, what's up? You know, I haven't seen you since the trip. What's going on? And he's like, yeah, it's great. Da, da, da. He's like, I got to tell you a story that happened. He said, right after the trip, I went home to uh, my parents. 
and in California. And my parents are unaffiliated, secular Jews. And, but I was on a high. I had just come back from this trip and we had been in Poland, Lithuania, Belarus. It was a wild trip, three countries, eight days long. And he tells me, it's one of the first trips I did, it's a long time ago. And he tells me, I told my mother, I said, you know, do we have anything from our ancestors from when they immigrated to the United States 100 years ago? Is there anything that we have from them? And, you know, you think that these stories only happen in, in storybooks that your mother reads to you when you're going to bed when you're six years old. She says, I have a box in the attic. But this really happened. He said, my mother told me I have a box in the attic. He says, really? I want to check it out. And he goes up to the attic to check out this box. And, and in this box, he finds all kinds of artifacts from his great-great-grandfather who came from a little town in Galicia and was a you know, traditional Jew with a long white beard and a big yarmulke on his head. And he finds pictures of him. He finds a sitter that belongs to him. He finds documents and letters and all kinds of things. And he whips out his phone. He says, let me show you a picture of him. And, and I, he shows me the picture. And I'm looking at the picture. Looks like a nice traditional looking Jew. I've probably seen 7 million pictures like that. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's so nice. That must be so special for you. And I'm trying to like, I'm looking at the picture the whole time. And, you know, encouraging him. And then I look up at him and he's crying. And this is a year later, almost. And I say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Everything okay? And he says, when I saw this picture, I said, I belong to my great-grandfather looked like everyone else's great-grandfather on the trip. And my great-grandfather came from the same towns in Poland and Eastern Europe that everyone else's great-grandfathers came on the trip. And we just skipped a couple of generations in between. But now I feel I belong. And he said, let me tell you something. I'm about to Shuva. Since I became about to Shuva, this is the feeling I had when they brought me to the Kaisel, the Western Wall, and when they brought me to Yeshiva. They brought me in as that I'm a guest and that I am choosing a new way of life, that I'm coming to assume a new identity because I feel like this is the right thing for me to do and this is the appropriate identity for me to have. But you're, at the end of the day, it's, you're joining something new. It's, there's something discomforting about it. There's something that you don't feel at home with it. And I never felt really comfortable in my new identity, even though I knew intellectually that I was doing the right thing for me. Now, I don't feel like I'm assuming a new identity. I'm simply returning to my roots. And what caused me to understand that was the trip and the subsequent revelation of my grandfather, my great-grandfather's picture. Because now I understand we all come from the same place. And just because we skipped 100 years in between, it's irrelevant. I'm returning to exactly the same place as everyone else comes from. And that was uh, also a very powerful story. And I have 100 of these, but I assume you can't hear 100 now. Uh, so we'll move on to the next one. Yes, and I would love to hear all 100, honestly, at some point. But shifting to perhaps the final peg in that stool, that triumvirate of your various areas of engagement, the touring that you lead in Israel, what would you say is your favorite place in Israel? Or perhaps more interestingly, what do you believe to be the most underappreciated site in the Holy Land? Again, a very subjective uh, question. This is everyone has their place, and 
you know, my place is not any more right or better or more inspirational than anywhere else. It's completely subjective. Um, I feel like, um, I don't know if it's the most powerful. I don't know if it's the most inspirational. It's definitely the most underrated. Is is a certain uh, visits to, like I said, I hope it doesn't sound too morbid. I said this earlier, to Jewish cemeteries. Um, because we look at cemeteries as a place of death, as a still place, as a place you want to forget about, and why in the world would some crazy person want to hang out there and like, oh my gosh, look at that, this is so cool. No, this person's not normal. Um, but it's underrated because it's not just about, it's not about death and it's not about the stillness. It's about history and it's about connection. And you go through and you say, look who's buried here. Do you understand his story and what he represented and where you're standing in front of? And let me tell you about him and let you experience that. And how did he get here? And why did he come back to Israel? And why is he buried here? And right next to him is someone else, which is a whole different story. And within three hours, in Yerushalayim, right in front of your nose, you just experienced a journey through Jewish history. You're enriched afterwards. And again, I don't know if it's the most powerful, the most inspirational, but it's definitely the most underrated. Do you have a favorite cemetery? <laughs> I know it sounds kind of weird, but... Do you have, is there one? <laughs> this is, it definitely sounds kind of weird. Um, is definitely my favorite. And now they've done quite a bit of restoration there, if I understand. Yes, they are, and the view is spectacular, and, and there's loads of history there. It's endless. I can never do enough of that. From your perch as a historian, do you have any pet peeves with the way that the tourism industry in Israel today operates? I don't know. I, I think everyone's doing a good job. Most tours are not history focused, so they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, they mix in history all the time, which is great. A modern, like even like really modern, I try to mix in, you know, stories about the modern state of Israel and the Six Day War and all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, I'm happy. I never have any criticism on, on the way things are done or other tour guys. I think anyone involved in the business is doing great work and it's important work. And, and it's not just in the tours. That's why one of the reasons I started the podcast a year ago, Jewish History Soundbites podcast. You're a podcaster, so you see the value, you see the medium and how, and how it reaches people. But it's, it's making history alive in another way. You know, the tours do it in one way, but with the tours, you're limited. And it's, it's just another way to, to find to do it, to be able to choose exciting stories, fun stories, interesting stories about personalities, about events, about institutions, about trends, and, and to try to make it alive, try to give it some relevance and meaning and, and incorporate it into our uh, both individual identities and collective ones. And the, in that, in that context, the tours in Israel, the tours in Europe, and the podcasts all serve the same purpose. Most podcasters have a story of when or why or how they started their podcast. What's yours? What galvanized you initially to launch this amazing Jewish history soundbites? Um, so I wish I could sound more ideological. But it was a very base uh, material need. I wanted to get the, my name out there for tours in Israel, for tours in Europe, um, to get it out of the market. And it originally started, like we say, Shalalishma. It wasn't uh, meant. Uh, it was a marketing organ. <laughs> exactly. 
But the response I received was so beyond any expectation or any, anything I would have ever imagined or dreamed of. And apparently out there, there's a thirst for it. People want to hear it. Um, I have amazing listeners, quality people, very knowledgeable. The feedback I get, it keeps me on my toes. I always have to think of better topics and make sure I'm researched because if I make a mistake, I will receive lots of corrections from people. And people want to hear. And it's interesting to them. In the beginning, I was like asking some of these people who, who, were, who were writing back, why are you interested in this? <laughs> I thought you were a normal person. I thought only nerds are into these <laughs> like me. And apparently that's not the case, which is very gratifying. So by now, it, it has a life of its own. It's beyond just for the tours and everything. The, there's Jewish History Soundbites is, is an entity of its own. It really has its own life. And, we, you know, we launched new series all the time. Now we're doing a whole thing on great American Jewish cities. We did on, on the Yeshivas Velazhin. We did on Zionism. We did on all kinds of things. And we do on great rabbinical leaders or, or lay leaders or events and we sometimes do quirky stuff and really touching on every aspect of modern Jewish history and it's, judging from, from the feedback, it seems that history, Jewish history has what to say to people today. Any other projects or ways that you're planning to branch out either off of the podcast or just generally, what would you say are some new ideas that might be on the horizon for you? always trying to expand. I'm trying to develop the podcast to new vistas, new horizons, uh, try to see what people like, try to up it to the next level. Um, definitely trying to do some more writing. It definitely is a goal. I uh, have a start a new column in Mishpacha magazine that uh, with a colleague of mine uh, who we do it jointly together. You know, we write a little bit of a history exhibit that, that my colleague Davi Safir finds and, and we work on it together. We write some text. So that's, a, that's hopefully going to become a popular thing. And who knows, maybe we'll write some more serious books one day also. And, and then the same thing with the tours. We're always trying to think of new ideas for tours, different countries, uh, more focused, public, private, families, institutions, groups, educational. And, and uh, there's, it's limitless. There's, there's, there's always more possibilities. Yehuda Geberer, podcaster, tour guide, Yad Vashem interviewer, among many other roles as a fascinating historian. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash jews you should know finally if you have enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to jews you should know